came together as a group of churches dedicated to engaging in ecumenical worship, to serve our community as the body of Christ, and to proclaim the good news of God in Christ. Our purpose in gathering together is to make certain that the people of Great Falls and the surrounding communities know that they are loved by God. In doing that, we've worked with 501c3s and out of our own churches to make certain that we provide care through Salvation Army and feeding programs and through many other 501c3s in this area dedicated to serving the most in need. We also come together as a group to share our common beliefs and those common beliefs include celebrations in and around the feast of the Incarnation and at this time of year, Holy Week and the Feast of the Resurrection. The Seven Last Word service was developed as an ecumenical service for the purpose of sharing in the faith we believe. And I am thankful that you have joined us on this Friday as we continue that tradition. And so, with the words that you can find in the chat and pull down for your ability to follow along, we open the service. Blessed be our God. 
the Decalogue. Hear the commandments of God to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods but me. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not make for yourself any idol. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not invoke with malice the name of the Lord your God. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Honor your father and your mother. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not commit murder. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not commit adultery. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not steal. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not be a false witness. Amen. Lord, have mercy. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. Lord, have mercy. We continue with a confession of sin. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God. Most merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. The first word. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Last summer in several cities, when Black Lives Matter protesters taunted the police, threw, threw bricks and bottles, vandalized government buildings, many progressives were quick to say, that's not us. We're better than that. That is not who we are. In fact, some of them were so fervent in their insistence that that's not us. They supposed that it must have been them instead. Conservative agitators masquerading as us. That's not us. We're better than that. That's not who we are. On January 6th of this year, when a mob of protesters stormed the United States Capitol, assaulted law enforcement officers, and paraded a Confederate battle flag through the foyer, many conservatives were quick to say, that's not us. We're better than that. That's not who we are. In fact, some of them were so fervent in their insistence that they supposed that it must have been them instead, progressive agitators masquerading as us. That's not us. We're better than that. That's not who we are. After the terrorist attacks of 9-11, Muslims around the globe implored the world to believe, that's not us. We're better than that. That's not who we are. 
after the uh, atrocious abuses of prisoners at Abu Ghraib were exposed, members of the military were quick to say, that's not us. We're better than that. That's not who we are. I've talked to some friends who are police chaplains, talking about the trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis, and they want me to know, that's not us. We're better than that. That's not who we are. When I fail my sons, when I fail my wife, when I fail my congregation, when I get caught in a lie, when I fail the hungry and the poor, when I fail the earth and the plants and animals with whom I share it, when I fail myself, when I fail my Lord, I want you to know that's not me. I'm better than that. That's not who I am. Look, can I just save us some time and clear the whole deck right now? That is who we are. We're not better than that. That's us. All of us. It's us. This is who we are. When we're under pressure, this is who we are in the heat of the moment. This is who we are when we're under threat. This is who we are when we're under stress. This is who we are when things come at us too fast, too hard, too often. This is who we are when we act out of the trauma that we bear in our bodies and our souls. The traumas of our personal histories, the shared trauma of human existence and sin. This is exactly who we are. Soren Kierkegaard, the Lutheran philosopher and mystic, says that we tend to be warmly subjective when assessing our own sins and coolly objective when assessing the sins of others. When what mercy demands is that we be warmly subjective when assessing others and coolly objective when assessing ourselves. Another way of putting it is the way Jesus put it. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? How can you say to your neighbor, here, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own? This is exactly who we are. This is us. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So much about this word from the cross is unclear, even confusing. For instance, to whom does the pronoun them refer? Father, forgive them. It's a wonderful grammatical mystery. Who is the them that Jesus wants forgiven? The last humans identified in the passage, are, in the previous verse, are the two criminals. Is that who he means? Before that, it's the soldiers. Before that, it's the crowds. But now we're counting back 15 verses. Before that, it's the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. In my mind, they're the most likely in need of forgiveness. But can they be the antecedent for the pronoun? They appeared 20 verses ago. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And what is this thing that they are doing? 
For what exactly does Jesus want for forgiveness for them, whoever they are? Is it only the nailing to the cross? Is it the trial and suffering he's just been through? Is it the wholesale rejection of Jesus's ministry and teaching going all the way back to the beginning? It could be any of those and all of those. So much about this word from the cross is unclear, even confusing. Who are they and what are they doing that needs forgiveness? And what does Jesus mean by saying they don't know what they're doing? Is he talking about their competence? When I say that someone doesn't know what they're doing, I'm usually referring to their competence. But you don't need forgiveness for incompetence. You need better training. Is Jesus accusing them of ignorance, of not seeing the bigger picture? Is that what he means by saying they don't know what they're doing? Forgive these minions, Lord. They're these common people. They're not the real drivers of all this. Is that what he means? Or is Jesus saying that they are somehow out of their minds or suffering from a dissociative disorder? They don't even know what they're doing. Maybe, but that doesn't call for forgiveness. That calls for mental health treatment. In fact, if they, whoever they are, don't know what they are doing, whatever that means, they don't need forgiveness at all. But Jesus asks God to forgive them because they do need forgiveness, because they know exactly what they're doing, because this is exactly who they are. They are not better than this. This is them. Criminals paying the price for their crimes, soldiers following legal but immoral orders, crowds swept up in the demonic thrill of the moment, chief priests and rulers who are jealous of Jesus' popularity and fearful of losing their power and enthralled with the status quo that has paid them so well and glad to whip up the crowd and the soldiers so that they will do the dirty work. This is exactly who we are. We are not better than this. This is us. And the word from the cross for us is, Father, forgive. At Jesus's gracious, merciful request, God forgives us. God elects not to hold us to account to wipe the slate clean, to invite us to a fresh start. Because while on the one hand, we knew exactly what we were doing when we put Jesus on the cross, God was doing something that we did not know anything about. God is laying the groundwork for a new world, powered by the spirit of the risen Christ. A new world where the logs and specks are gone, a new world where the warm subjectivity with which we assess ourselves will be fully warranted. A new world where we will be able to look at our lives and our relationships and be able to say with joy and thanksgiving, this is us. This is who we are. There is no better way to be. God forgives us and welcomes us fully now, today, into that new world. Amen. The collect after the first word. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, 
that you delivered us from the dominion of sin and death and brought us into the kingdom of your Son. And we pray that as by his death he has recalled us to life, so by his love he may raise us to eternal joys, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The second word, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Lord Jesus, take these words, open them to our minds and apply them to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Three men shared death upon a hill, but only one man died. The other two, a thief and God himself made rendezvous. Now that poem by Miriam Lefevre Krauss summarizes the scene surrounding Jesus' second statement from the cross. It was a scene involving remarkable contrasts and even a tremendous outcome. Let's view these events that unfolded in this brief moment in the time that led to Jesus' statement recorded in Luke 23, 43. Events that would result in one man's eternal destiny making a 180 degree turn. As Jesus was hanging upon the cross, insults were being hurled at him from nearly every person witnessing the crucifixion. The rulers of the Jews were sneering at Jesus and taunting him. Luke tells us they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. It was as if they were congratulating themselves, beating their chest and showing their superiority of their knowledge, saying to everybody, see, we were right. This man isn't our Messiah. If he was, he would come down off of, those off of that cross and he would take charge. Little did they realize though, that their words on the one hand were blasphemous because Jesus truly was God's chosen one and they were mocking him. Yet at the same time, their words contained some truth. That's because unknown to them, Jesus was paying the penalty for sin for the entire human race. A penalty for anyone who has a sin nature within them, and that includes everybody. The penalty of death. If he were to fully pay that penalty, he had to die. He couldn't save himself. If he would have saved himself, that would have defeated his whole purpose for coming. The soldiers, of course, who were standing by also mocked him much in the same way. And adding to all this mocking and railing were the blasphemous words of two men who hung on crosses beside him. One person on his left, one on his right. Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts both tell us that at first, both of these men were uttering insults and blasphemies. Who were these men? Well, very likely they were Jews because of course Roman citizens could not normally be placed on a cross. The only exception would be in the case of treason. So they were Jews, 
They were people who the Roman government considered to be a threat to Rome. Luke calls them criminals. The word that's translated criminals in the NIV means evildoers, wrongdoers, or malefactors. It's obvious that these two men were considered by Rome to be a threat to the Roman Empire in some way. Now, we're not told this for certain in Scripture, but I have to wonder if these two criminals may have been associates of Barabbas, the man who was set free when Pilate offered the crowd the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas, we're told, was a robber, John chapter 18, verse 40. He was a murderer, Luke chapter 23, verse 19, and also an insurrectionist, one who participated in a violent uprising against the Roman authority. Had the crowd chosen to release Jesus rather than Barabbas, Barabbas would likely have been upon that cross that Jesus was now occupying. Now, if the insults hurled by these two condemned men who hung on the cross beside Jesus had been against the Roman government, that would have been no surprise. After all, it would have been their last bitter statements against their hated enemy. So why would these insults be hurled at Jesus, who was a fellow sufferer? It was because he claimed to be the Messiah, God's anointed one, who was to set up God's kingdom. In their minds, if Jesus were the Messiah, then what was he doing hanging upon a cross? Shouldn't he have been able to rescue himself and them as well? His loyal followers, most likely zealots, who had wanted to overthrow Rome and see God's kingdom come in and have Israel be a free nation once more. But he simply hung there, doing nothing of the sort. Well, if that's the case, they must have reasoned, then he's certainly not the one who he claimed to be. While they were spewing hatred at the Romans, they might as well spew it at Jesus as well. But in the midst of these vile words being thrown about, however, something happened in the heart of one of these criminals. He fell silent. His insults ceased. It wasn't because he couldn't talk, because he sure spoke up just a few moments later. And this was still early in the crucifixion process. So what was going on? What was happening in his heart that made him fall silent? Perhaps as he witnessed all the hatred that was being flung in all directions, it no longer seemed right to be directing it toward Jesus. No such words were coming out of Jesus' mouth, even though he was suffering just as much as the other two men, perhaps physically, yes, but maybe even more spiritually and emotionally he was suffering. Not only that, rather than spew out words of hatred, Jesus had uttered a prayer of forgiveness to those who put him on the cross. He was different than these two men. And this one man realized it. No doubt the Holy Spirit was at work in his heart, helping him to see the situation in its true light, the way that God sees it. No doubt the Holy Spirit was convicting this man of his own sinfulness, a sinfulness which previously the criminal, the thief, the robber would have considered to be zeal for God since his deeds were likely against the Romans rather than against his own Jewish people. 
And the Holy Spirit may have been showing him that Jesus was truly who he claimed to be. While this man's understanding may have only been in its infancy, somehow he was coming to know that this truly was the Messiah. And Jesus did not deserve the wretched treatment from the Romans that was being given to him, nor the wretched treatment from those who were hanging beside him. This was the first step in the process of salvation for this man, coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The once silent criminal could now keep silent no longer. Luke tells us in verse 40 that this man rebuked his fellow criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? We're being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Was this an attempt to silence the other criminal so that his abuse of Jesus would stop? Was this a way of trying to communicate to him the desire for him to rethink all that he was saying so that perhaps this other man could let the Holy Spirit begin working in his heart too? Or was this a statement of this man's faith? A bit late since his time on earth was very much limited at this point, but a statement that he felt he needed to make nevertheless. Perhaps it was all three. Certainly, the Holy Spirit was making a change in this man's heart. He was confessing his sin, seeing it the way God saw it, and perhaps with that confession, he was desiring to repent of his sin as best he could. Confession and repentance are the next steps in salvation after the Holy Spirit begins his work of transformation. The dying criminal then took the final step in that process of salvation, receiving Jesus as his Messiah and expressing faith in what Jesus would ultimately do, bring in the kingdom of God. Again, he didn't know all the details concerning how this would come about because Jesus was dying just as he was. But somehow, even though neither of them were going to survive at this point, he was trusting that Jesus would live again and be able to fulfill everything God wanted him to do. This man had the faith to see that Jesus, as the Messiah, would carry out God's plan, a plan that perhaps this man had learned in his younger days growing up in the synagogue. He now places himself entirely in Jesus' hands, asking for Jesus to simply have mercy upon him, asking him if he could be a part of that glorious kingdom when Jesus brought it about. Jesus, he said in verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he wanted was to be wherever Jesus would be, for he must have reasoned that even the lowest place in the kingdom would be better than spending an eternity without God. Salvation occurred in this man's life. As the poem we read earlier said, the thief and God himself made rendezvous. How do we know this? Because Jesus' response to this man who hung on the cross beside him in his second statement from the cross told, tells us so. 
I tell you the truth, Jesus said. These words from Jesus' lips came at times when he was making a solemn statement, one that was assuredly true beyond the shadow of a doubt. It was as if Jesus was saying, I solemnly swear to you, I make you a promise that is certain to be fulfilled. Today, not someday, not whenever, not off in the future, but today, right now, after we've both taken our final breath upon this earth, something's going to happen. This former condemned man, still condemned physically, but now pardoned eternally, would be with Jesus, his Messiah. Where Jesus was going, this man was going. There would be no separation, not even for an instant. You will be with me, Jesus said. As it was as if he was saying to this man, I have seen the change in your heart. I have heard your confession. I have heard your cry of faith. And I grant you new life forever. And where is it they'll be going? Paradise. <coughs> Jesus is saying to this man, you are going to be with me in that place that I've been preparing for anyone who trusts in the payment that I'm making for sin. There is a life in store that will be more glorious than you could have ever imagined. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, this paradise was considered by the Jews to be a blessed part of the abode of the dead. Just as the case of Lazarus in Jesus parable of the rich man and Lazarus who went to Abraham's bosom, that place of blessing. It was a temporary place though. But following Jesus' death and resurrection, after sin's penalty had been paid and had been fully accepted by God the Father, there would be no need for a temporary abode. As the Apostle Paul would later say, absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. And where is that? It is in heaven. So Jesus says to this thief and to all of us, when you have trusted in me as your Savior and Messiah, I am taking you directly into my presence once you leave this earth. What a blessing! What precious words Jesus uttered to this man dying on the cross beside him. Words that conveyed eternal hope, eternal glory, and blessings greater than anybody could ever imagine. Now today, a little over a year after the COVID-19 pandemic turned all of our lives upside down, this statement of Jesus is more precious than ever. For over a year, many people have lived in fear of dying because of this virus. Many have lost their lives. Some who have survived have needed to deal with lingering effects. How long will this pandemic continue? No one knows. Reports of mutations of the virus place into question any sort of immunity people may have thought that they had, whether it be from having the disease and getting over it, thus having antibodies that would prevent the disease in the future, or taking a vaccine, which would hopefully give them the same results. There is much that we still do not know, and the lack of knowledge brings fear. 
but there is something that we need to fear even more than COVID-19. People need to fear dying without knowing Jesus. Because you see, it's only when we trust in Jesus that we can be assured of being in paradise with him when we leave this earth. And it's not just COVID that might cause us to do that. We can die at any time of any cause. The death rate, you see, is 100%. Nearly. I say nearly because only two people have avoided it, Enoch and Elijah. Everybody else has died and everybody else is going to die apart from the rapture whenever that occurs. Scripture says it is appointed to man to die once and after that the judgment. But by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as this dying criminal did, we can be sure when we leave this earth, whenever it may be, that Jesus will be able to say to us, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Be sure that you'll hear Jesus say those words to you. And be sure, if at all possible, that your friends and your family will be able to hear those words as well. Let's pray the words of the collect following this second word. Let us pray. Oh God, your blessed son was laid in a tomb in a garden and rested on the Sabbath day. Grant that we who have been buried with him in the waters of baptism may find our perfect rest in his eternal and glorious kingdom where he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. The third word, John 19, 26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciples took her into his home. Bishop Gerald Kennedy once told the story of seeing a very poorly dressed woman and her young daughter looking into one of the department store windows in the downtown area of a very large city one Christmas evening. Inside the window was the manger scene and included in that manger scene was Mary all dressed up as the queen of heaven with diamonds and other jewelry in her dazzling crown. The little girl gazed at Mary for a while and then turned to her own mother and said, she's so beautiful. I bet she never had any trouble like we do. Did she, Mom? It's Good Friday. And here we are again, Another year of living and suffering through COVID-19. 
Another year of reflecting on the seven last words of Jesus as he hung on the cross, dying a brutally agonizing death right there in the presence of his mother, Mary. Woman, this is your son. Now, I have done funerals over these many years in ministry. I have done funerals for parents burying their son or daughter. And I have to tell you, there's nothing more heartbreaking than for a parent to bury a child. It is even more heartbreaking when death comes at the hands of some cowardice leader and a very hypocritical crowd. A crowd that earlier in the week celebrated Jesus as a king. Hosanna, they said. Hosanna in the highest heavens. And a few days later, this same crowd vilified him as a total fraud. Crucify him. Crucify him. And we are told standing there at the foot of the cross was his mother, Mary, watching her son die. Standing there with Mary, the wife was the, the other Mary, the wife of Cleopas, his, her sister Salome, wife of Zebedee, and the mother of James and John and Mary Magdalene, all there watching their loved one die. They all stood and they watched helplessly. There was nothing they could do to stop it. All they could do was to stand at the foot of the cross and just be there for Jesus and for each other. We all have been there, I'm sure, at some point in our lives, being at a graveside, comforting a, lo a loved one who has lost someone so close and so precious to them. Woman, here is your son. And to John the disciples, Jesus turned to him and he said, and here is your mother. In committing his mother to John's care, Jesus placed her in a community of love and concern, a community that cares. See, for us Christians, Good Friday becomes a community day for us. It's a day for us to, to say to a hurting and broken world, that in Christ's suffering, Christ can be a comfort to all of us.
Christ can be a healer, the one who forgives, the one who accepts. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection bind us together in community. It binds us together in fellowship so that none of us should ever have to feel alone. Being Christian, my friends, being Christ followers is all about living life in community. It's all about being witnesses of the power of the cross, just as it was for Mary on that day. So on this Good Friday, may God give us the grace and courage to continue to be witnesses of the power of the cross in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, graciously behold this your family for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. The fourth word from Jesus Christ, our Lord, on the cross is from Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, and Mark chapter 15, 34. Hear the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone heard that it's impossible to live Costco without spending less than $100. One day, he set his mind. He gave himself a mission to go to Costco and get the one item he needed, which was $50. He went straight to the item, grabbed one, and went to the checkout line without looking at anything else or even sampling their food. Standing in the line, he was relieved. He thought, I got this. Yes, I'll spend less than $100. He went to the cashier, and cashier told him, Sir, you have to renew your membership today, and it costs $55. He ended up spending $105 before taxes. Now, we are living in an age, what we call the age of infinite choices. We buy so many things, it's very hard to spend less than $100 at Costco. In the meantime, as much as we buy so many things, we throw away a lot of things too. The average American family spends $1,700 on clothes annually, while the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. Perhaps this number will go up in the Great Falls area. Our throwing away, our abandonment seems prevalent these days, and it is not limited to clothing or commodities, as you can tell. 
we find these stories after stories that people forsake their children, people abandon their parents, their friends, their spouse, their career, their job, their church, and even their faith. So I discovered that a lot of people in our day and time are in fear and anxiety because one day, if not many days, they could be the ones who will be forsaken, abandoned, rejected, or even trashed by somebody or some place. Deep down, our minds and our souls are polluted by this disease of anxiety and loneliness against rejection and forsakenness. Because deep down, we know being forsaken is bitter, is biting, is painful. And none of us want that feeling. There is a novel that dives deeper into the issue of abandonment. It's called The Girl I Left Behind written by a Japanese writer, Shushaku Endo, is more famous for his book, The Silence, which was made and released in a movie several years ago. Probably some of you have watched it. In this novel, The Girl I Left Behind, there is a man, Yoshi Oka, a student, not much interested in his studies, short on cash and long on sexual desire. There is another character, Mitsu, a plain, naive country girl. They randomly met and spent the night together. Once Yoshioka satisfied his desire, he left her. He graduated from college. He settled down in a career and married his boss's niece. His future is assured and promising. On the other hand, Mitsu takes quite another path. She did not abandon Yoshioka in her heart. She did not erase him from her memory, rather she lived with it. Later, she found out that she had leprosy and started living in a special care shelter with other patients. Soon, however, she learned that her leprosy was misdiagnosed and was able to leave the facility and live a new life, but instead she remained there because she could not abandon her new friends, a bunch of social outcasts. Ever since, she stayed there, be friends with them, took care of them. One day she died from a car accident. A nun sorting through Mitsu's belongings discovers that Mitsu left many letters to Yoshioka. She bundled them together and sent them out to him. Now Yoshioka had the letters before him and reading them through, he puzzled and thought to himself likewise. I gazed at the letter for an age. I have to say that I gazed at it rather than reading it. So what? I tried get, telling myself. I only did what other any other man would have done. It's not just me. It could not be only me. And yet, and yet, what was the source of my current loneliness? I had secured for my life, myself, a moderate yet dependable happiness. I was not about to abandon that out of consideration for Mitsu. And yet, why did I feel so lonely? If Mitsu had taught me anything at all, it was that every single person with whom we cross paths during our journey through life leaves an indelible mark on us. So does loneliness stand from such marks? Furthermore, if the God in whom this nun believes truly exists, does he speak to us through these marks? But still I have to ask, what was the source of my loneliness? 
Apparently, Mitsu seems far from ordinary. Is she living in this real world? We ask. How can a human being live like that? Having someone in her heart for the rest of her life, the one that she dated just for the night, the one that cruelly left her behind without even looking back. What an idiot, we think. What about committing her all her life for the sake of the suffering people? Even though she don't have to really belong there, she could have lived for herself. She could enjoyed her life in a different way. But why would she do that? Mitsu disturbs our hearts and gives us an uneasiness, and yet we find relief, saying, "Oh, she is just an invented character. It's a novel. That's why she's not like us." But deep down, just like Yoshioka, we find an indelible mark of puzzlement. Loneliness, something that we cannot easily pass by, because in Michu's story we find royalty, faithfulness, stability, humility, and greater love, something that we as human beings are longing for. Because what we long for, what do we desire in our in our deep hearts? We want to be forgiven, not forsaken. We want to be accepted, not condemned. We want to be welcomed, not rejected. We want to be at home, not in a foreign land. That's what we want, and that's what others want as well. Yes, Mitsu was an invented character by a human author. It wasn't a real story, but what's exciting is there is a real story. There is a real character. There is a perfect human being, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who willingly offered up everything for our sake. To win his love towards us, even though we fail to love him, even though we abandon him, he never abandoned us. He came to us, Emmanuel. God is with us. Even though we forgot about him, he never stops writing a love letter to us. Even though our minds are busy with this earthly life, he persistently waits for our coming back to him. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Even though he deserves all our worship, he humbled himself to wash our feet to serve. Even though he already existed in the form of God, emptied himself by taking the form of a low bond servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. And on this cross, we hear what he said, what he screamed out today: "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Jesus was forsaken for our sins. Jesus took all the burdens of our sins, past, present, and future, to be the ransom for many. The sinless Son of God has become the sin of all sins, so that everyone who believes in this gospel. May not perish, but may have eternal life. Two things I want you to take away from this message. Number one, look on the cross. Let's look on the cross. When we look on the cross, what do we have to see? What do we need to find from that cross? Yes, of course, we need to see Jesus, but at the same time, we have to see us, see ourselves on the cross. Because it should be us who's supposed to be hung on that cross. Jesus died on the cross in my place, in your place. He was tortured. 
He went through agonies and sufferings, and he was thirsty. He he undertook mockery and rejection, and he had to go through the separation, this forsakenness from God. And they all supposed to be ours, mine. But Jesus took them all, all for our sake. So make it personal. That's important. Make the message of the cross a direct personal communication to you rather than we come to the cross and think as if we see it through cameras and screens, as if it's a scene that has nothing to do with me or this world. No, Jesus has died for you who are sitting and listening to this message. Jesus has died for me who are delivering this message now. The late Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, John Mary Lustinger, used to tell the story of the three boys who played a trick on the local priest by going into the confessional and confessing all kinds of wild stories. The first two ran away and the priest wasn't fooled. He gave the third boy a penance to perform. He told him to go to the far end of the church to look up the large cross hanging there and to say to the figure on the cross, you did all that for me and I don't give a damn. He told him to do it three times. Off went the boy. This was still part of the game. You did all that for me, he said, and I don't give a damn. And he said it the second time and then he couldn't say it the third time. He broke down and left the church a changed person. And the reason I know that story, the archbishop would conclude, is that I was that third boy. I was that young man. But once he realized that Jesus died on the cross for him personally, he was not the same person as he used to be. He was a new person. So as you and I come to the cross and looking on the cross now, I hope we can sing this song together from the bottom of our hearts. Wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, and now I'm free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. Recently, I was chatting with my friend, Christian friend. She told me entering into the holy, this Holy Week, she feels different this year. She said, every year I have always made it a practice to spend time in reflection and scripture meditation, to understand Christ's sacrifice. But this year, it's different. I don't even know how to explain it except to say I just feel everything so much more deeply. May all of us today feel everything so much more deeply when we're looking on the cross. By looking at the cross, we may say, by the help of the Holy Spirit, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Dying for me, dying for him. There on the cross, he was dying for me. Number two, listen from the cross. When we look at the cross and we simply say, phew, that's great. My sins are forgiven. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven after I die. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me. From now on, I'll enjoy the rest of my life until I die and go to heaven. I hope this is not the case, but if you, any of us understand the cross in such a way, it means you are missing something big. That's half truth. And half truth means no truth. 
being saved because of Jesus dying on the cross means that we are a new person, that we are a new creation, a new human being. And as a new person, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. We have to come down. We have to come down from the mountain to go into the world as a new being, as a new creature. At the cross, we have to hear that Jesus is giving us a new calling, new mission to make the whole world, the kingdom of God, the new creation, the new heaven and earth, the new tabernacle of God, the new dwelling place of God until Jesus comes back with glory and power to complete what he has started on the cross. Jesus says, if any want, if anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And hear me this. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If Jesus was forsaken for the sake of this world, then we as a follower of Jesus must be forsaken for the sake of this world. We should be like Mitsu in a way, unrealistic figure in this world. And yet it's more than real as our Lord was real once we are helped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want to imagine with this, we and I become a person like Jesus, a person like Mitsu, who is willing to be forsaken for the kingdom of God in our homes, in our workplace, in our church, in our community, in our relationships. Imagine our church has become a church that is willing to serve, not to be served in our community. Imagine a Christian religion, a true religion that really embodies the heart of humility that was in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, be the light and salt. And I'm sure that's how we shine the light and become salty in our world today, where the forsaking and abandoning seems normal and prevalent. We Christians willingly offer our royalty, faithfulness, stability, and humility, and greater love. Even if it takes much of our sacrifice, even to our death. Back to the story about a man at Costco. He took a mission, like you remember, to spend less than $100. Well, everyone else said it's impossible, and they were right. He failed his mission. And today, even if we set our minds and do this mission to be willing to live a life we learn from the Lord, willing to be forsaken, and exemplifying the kenosis, being humble and being less, and everyone else would say it's impossible. That's non-human. But we say with the human, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. So may the Holy Spirit help you and me to go beyond our limits by the power and grace upon us so that we may be the persons what God us to be. The image bearers of God. Something that we learn, something that we have to follow from the true human of Jesus Christ. So as you're closing, I want, which I'm very excited to share this video clip that I recorded earlier this week. I was thinking of you when I was recording this video. 
this shot was taken at the at the place called Pre Chapel Place in South Carolina. And as you will check this out soon, it was indeed a really pretty, really beautiful place. At the front of the chapel, there is a cross that you will see. And while you are looking at the cross, this, some, this is something I want to do. I want to picture yourself on that cross and thinking that sh it should be me. You know, I'm supposed to be there, but also let's thank God you know, for offering his son to die for us on behalf of us, to hung on that cross for me and for you. And as the ca camera gets close to the cross, I want to hear from the, from the Lord, hear from Jesus, the message coming from his wounds and death, the message from his outcry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I guess I believe this message carries this message that he wants to follow his footsteps. And behind the cross, you will see God's beautiful creation before you. And let's ask God together, oh, Holy Spirit, help me make things anew for your sake. We may go down into that world and may we bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you all. Amen. Let us pray. O oh God, by the passion of your blessed Son, you made an instrument of shameful death to be for us the means of life. Grant us so to glory in the cross of Christ that we may gladly suffer shame and loss for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of the living heart will say, Amen. And now the fifth word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We sure do know what it's like to be thirsty, don't we? But fortunately for most of us, all we have to do is walk over to the refrigerator and pull out a refreshing drink of cool water to quench our thirst. But the thirst that Jesus experienced on the cross was a whole different kind of thirst. After hanging on the cross for hours and struggling for each and every breath, and after a prayer-filled sleepless night in the Garden of Gethsemane where he literally sweat drops of blood, only to be followed by that scourging, and, and then the crown of thorns placed on his head, and then the spikes driven into his palms and 
into his feet, well, we can certainly understand why he was thirsty. And knowing that his work on the cross was almost complete, Jesus' physical body was fighting him. It was fighting to live. And so he thirsts. His thirst certainly reminds us of his humanity. But so much more is going on here than meets the eye. The Gospel of John says that he proclaimed those words, I thirst, to fulfill scripture. And two psalms come to mind that maybe Jesus was thinking about when he was on the cross. The first is Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, where it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And also Psalm 69, where it reads, I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But theologians also note this, that there's another scripture that comes to mind as well. And it happens just before his time on the cross. We're in chapter 18, when Peter tries to stop the guards from arresting Jesus, and he pulls out that sword, and he lops off the ear of the high priest's slave. Jesus says to Peter these words, Put back your sword. Put it back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup my father has given me? You see, Jesus used this cup as a metaphor to say that the cup he would thirst for and drink from is the cup of suffering on the cross, which he came to endure that so that we might have life in him and that we, we may never be thirsty again. His thirst... Drinking from the cup of suffering was to complete his saving work for each and every one of us. And that simple request of, I thirst, was so that he could utter those next words. It is finished. But you see, this, however, was not the first time that Jesus asked for a drink of water. If you go back earlier in the Gospel of John to John chapter 4, Jesus encountered a Samaritan woman at a well, and he changed her life forever by asking her for a drink of water. There he made that remarkable promise for her, and yes, for us as well, where he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. You see, the water that Jesus speaks about here is a lifeline for you and for me. 
Because Jesus recognizes in each and every one of us that there is a deeper thirst than just when we need a drink of water. A thirst that is far more important. It's a spiritual thirst. A thirst that gives us life, real and everlasting life. It's the kind of thirst that quenches us when we are in despair or in loneliness or are dealing with addictions or anxieties or anxieties or griefs or pains. It's also a thirst that releases us from our sinfulness. And so Jesus says to us, with whatever thirst that we may be dealing with on the inside, that the thirst that will quench us most is the thirst for him and him alone. You see, Jesus thirsted so that we might never thirst again. And because of his work on the cross, and because of his thirst, we are able to drink from a never-ending spring that comes forth out of the cross through the blood of the Lamb and gushes up into eternal life. And so with the psalmist, or psalmist let us proclaim, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God. Friend, when you thirst for the living God, look no further than the crucified one who thirsted for you. Let us pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy. Grant us so to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection, who lives and reigns now and forever. Amen. The sixth word. It is finished. John 19, verse 30. I begin most Sundays by reading a bit more than we had up above. Let me begin this sermon the same way. A reading from John. After this, Jesus knew that all was now finished. He said, In order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Just behind me is a garden. 
Gardens are an important part of the Gospel of John. Even now, in this place, at this time, we're between gardens. In fact, we're between a lot of gardens. The beginning of the Gospel of John, the Logos hymn, begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This beginning to the Gospel of John is so evocative of the beginning of the Bible and the book of Genesis. And I am quite certain, though I can't prove it, that the writer of the Gospel of John wanted us to be thinking about this when he wrote this particular piece or when he included it in his Gospel. This was what happened in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 10, I mean, chapter 2, verse 10. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So the garden is important. It's the beginning of the story, and in this story in the Gospel of John, the garden is important once again. At the very end, when Jesus is about to be arrested, he's in the garden. He's in a garden. He's close to his father. And it is in that garden, Gethsemane, where he prays for his disciples. And he asks his father to be with them and protect him. And then there is this sudden and awful moment after Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which his disciples, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? It seems that once again, man is to be kicked out of the garden. Into that reality and harshness that can be the world. And in these stories, we know that the place in which we live and the world in which Jesus came was 
a beautiful place, a good place, a place that God wanted us to enjoy. And yet, it's not a perfect place. It can be a strange place, it can be a cruel place. This past year has been a place where there are so many things that have become strange. So many evocative moments that say the world is not normal. When I started a minute ago, I talked about this garden as associated with the gardens. And this particular garden right now is a sign of the spring that is coming. If you were to see it, you would see yellow and white flowers popping up out of the ground, purple flowers as well. The grass is greening. The plants are enriched. Fullness of life is coming. And it wasn't there two weeks ago or even on the vernal equinox. These are signs that life is moving in and we're hopeful even now in our world. They're signs of things that might be opening up. In this past year, there have been other kinds of signs, signs that are less friendly. Signs like observe social distancing, remain six feet apart, all customers must wear masks. If you have any flu-like symptoms, please do not come to work. Due to the COVID pandemic, this business is closed or just closed. It's been a frustrating year and the signs that we've seen are not the signs that we hoped for. But the Gospel of John is a gospel full of signs. In fact, it seems, there are seven signs in this gospel. Signs that are there to tell us something about the world around us and what is happening to it in Jesus. The Gospel of John starts with the sign of Jesus changing water into wine. Jesus also has the sign of healing the, the child of the ruler of the synagogue. There is the healing of the blind, the man born blind. There's the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida. There is the feeding of the 5,000. There is the raising of Lazarus. Six incredible signs about the world of John. And without becoming a numerologist, it seems that there is to be a seventh sign. People have argued about it all the time. But I believe the seventh sign is this moment in the Gospel of John when Jesus has been lifted up. We've been told about that. We've been told about that in chapter 12 of this Gospel when Jesus meets some Greeks. And those Greeks come to him. And in that moment, when the nations of the world have been opened up at last to recognize that Jesus is the one to whom they should come, it seems that it's now the time for Jesus to do what was his intention and his 
mission from God all the time. Just before we get to this moment in this gospel, there's another sign that goes on the cross. And it is a sign of the world. It is written by, or at the order of Pilate, and it's a sign that's cynical, skeptical, authoritative, and mocking at the same time. Pilate knew how to do that. I mean, earlier, as Jesus and Pilate sort of parried with one another, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? In that moment, he was being a true Roman politician. But we're to understand that the answer was and is that Jesus is the truth. In fact, as Pilate sort of ironically and paradoxically holds Jesus up and says, view the man, he doesn't recognize what he's saying because Jesus is the man, the human one, the one who we are to be like. The one who fulfills the goodness of creation in being truly human. And then again, Pilate to exacerbate or pile on or to do all the things that a politician does. He wanted to rub the nose of pain into the followers of Jesus and the people of Jerusalem. And so the sign that he creates to put on the cross, which is the sign that we're to look at, is this. King of the Jews. And in order that we should not mistake what that sign says, it was written in, Rome, in Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew. So that everybody who stood at that hill at the foot of that cross, knew what was being said. Here was the world making its statement about Jesus. And yet, at the same time, the cross becomes Jesus' sign to that world. Now, because John doesn't point out particularly what the last sign is to be, sometimes we have to wrestle and understand, and especially since this particular sign is really hard to encompass in our brains and our hearts. Why is it that Jesus is hanging on a cross? Why is it that he is being mocked? Why is it that he has been tortured? Why is it that he must die? Let me give you some preliminary thoughts, ones that I hold lightly because they're not all the thoughts that one can have about this moment. From the beginning of the Gospel of John, we the readers, the disciples of Jesus, and all who encounter him, honestly, in his journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, are given to understand that the word who has come down from heaven has lived among us, tented among us, 
pitched his life into our midst. But because of who the word is, he knows that his purpose is to be at Golgotha at this moment. In fact, when he's talking to those very Greeks and he asks if he's supposed to put this aside, he says, no, this is my purpose. I've come for this. That's a cruel purpose to come for, to offer one's life, to give life. But God's demonstration of love in this moment is something that we didn't anticipate or expect. And that's part of what this is about. It's to reverse the order. It's to reconcile, restore, reverse. It is to heal. And it is strange that in death, Jesus continues to affirm these purposes. He's accomplished all that he set out to do in this moment. He needs to do no more. It is finished, done, accomplished, complete. Done doesn't seem to be a word. Or finished isn't a word. It is particularly adequate to this moment. But it's the best we have. It's the best we have because it is a pause in the work of God, but nothing more needs be done by Jesus. I've thought about this scene a lot living through this past year. I don't know how many people have had to witness those whom they love give up their lives. The goodness of the world has been disrupted. Redemption, release, and renewal seem so far away. And yet, now, we're closing in, and yet, it's still difficult. Now, this is what I see as a big part of this. Real renewal, restoration, redemption, and reconciliation don't come from authorities of this world or businesses or agencies or from anybody who can write those signs. I'm not telling you not to look at those signs and to obey them and to, to live out your life carefully at this moment. But I'm telling you those aren't the signs that we have been called to see. The signs that we have been called are the signs of this moment. That even as the authorities post their statements above the whole world, God undoes the very power of what they have. They are defeated by a peasant hanging from a rude cross on a hill in Palestine far away from powers and principalities. The signs we look for are the signs of the restored garden, not just the flowers and the greenery, but lives lived for the purposes of God, to love, to heal, 
to transform, to sustain, and to renew. Let us pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy, grant us so to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection, who lives and reigns now and forever. Amen. The seventh word, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. A reading from Luke, chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a dense distance, watching these things. To be at the ending sometimes requires us to go back to the beginning. Just like in the sixth word, the beginning is so important to the ending. I want to point out what happens at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events which have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those from the beginning, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. There at the beginning, we see that Luke wants us to know that this is an orderly account, that he is someone who, watching from the outsides, believes that you should trust your eyes and your ears and all of your senses to know about the importance of Jesus Christ. And here at the end, even with these words, rather than just reflecting on the comment itself, I point you toward that moment just at the end of this paragraph in which Jesus has said, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. Why do we know this? 
It's not being told from Jesus, though we might find uh, some reference and sustenance in his reference to the Spirit. We know this because of this line. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Yeah, they are the witnesses. The women from Galilee, there they are again. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. We'll hear of them again. We'll see them again. And they will be important to us. It's evidence for us. But it's a strange kind of evidence because it's not simply the witness of what we've seen that informs us. It's the witness of who Jesus is. And part of that witness is contained in his faithful response to the Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's to the Father that he sends the spirit of who he is. Now, of course, we now think of that spirit in many different ways. But that spirit is to go to God. That life-giving, sustaining spirit. The spirit that caused Jesus to say at the beginning of his ministry these things. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yeah, the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he sends that same Spirit back to the Lord. He has come full circle. It has sustained him, it has energized him in his ministry, and this is a ministry in which he is taught, healed, restored, raised people from the dead. It is a ministry in which he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, that year in Jewish lore and systems of thought that at the Jubilee year, the people would be freed. And then he has gone through that Jubilee year and made those proclamations. And it looks like that in that moment, the world didn't really want what he had to offer. Or at least not the authorities of the world. Instead of being excited and running with joy that the Lord was proclaiming freedom and liberation and goodness in abundance, the world thought, this is a scary thing and we have to put a stop to it. There was something about that day that impressed all the gospel writers. 
This is what Luke had to say. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Portents. Portents of a troubled moment. The sun's light was failing. And the temple of the curtain, the place where the Holy of Holies was kept, the place that was God's footstool, the curtain that divided it from the rest of the world was ripped in two. And then the people there sort of understood very clearly that something was amiss. The centurion, a solid sort of citizen, I'm not saying he was a good man, I don't know much about his practice, the centurions were soldiers. They were solid. They were, they were precise. They understood reality. And what does he say? Certainly this man was innocent. This kind of portent wouldn't have happened if this man were guilty. He was innocent. And then the gathered crowds. Instead of cheering and wondering and and being excited about this, they too saw these things and the spectacle that had taken place and they returned home beating their breasts. That's the kind of things people do when they're, when they're anxiety ridden, when they're fearful, when they're anguished. And there... At a distance were Jesus' acquaintances, including the women. A small crowd, a quiet crowd. Because in that moment, you don't want to advertise yourself. And I'm sure that moment was dispiriting, dispiriting. It is the final thing and once the final thing has happened, when the spectacle is done, the spectacle of the authority of this world taking control over a human being, defaming him, mocking him, and executing him, there's nothing left to see. Many of the crowd were probably there to hoot and holler to mock, just like the Romans and the authorities. And some, who were more careful about this, who did not want scapegoating or, or the placing of all of their anxieties and anguish on people like the criminals that hung, hanged with Jesus, they were there quietly watching, reflecting, trying to make sense of all of this. There were powers at work, powers that we still don't understand, but there were powers for death and there were powers for life in this moment 
and those women, those brave and courageous women, those witnesses who could tell us about what happened, they watched these things. And then they told the world about these things. We need that witness, that courage. We need that quiet watchfulness. We need the people who stay connected, even when their friends are being abused. Because we need the people to witness to us not only the power of God, but the failure of ourselves. So that we might in fact, know the spirit that Jesus commended to God. Let us pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy. Grant us so to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection, who lives and reigns forever. Amen. We continue the service with the song, Colics. Dear people of God, our Heavenly Father sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved, that all who believe in Him might be delivered from the power of sin and death, and to become heirs with Him of everlasting life. We pray, therefore, for the people everywhere according to their needs. Let us pray for the Holy Catholic Church of Christ throughout the world for its unity in witness and service, for all ordained and lay ministers and the people whom they serve, for St. Francis Episcopal Church, Andrew Chapel United Methodist Church, Christ the King Lutheran Church, Drainsville Church of the Brethren, Great Falls United Methodist Church, Salem Baptist Church, Smith Chapel United Methodist Church, and all Christians in this community. That God will confirm his church in faith, increase it in love, and preserve it in peace. Almighty and everlasting God, by whose spirit the whole body of your faithful people is governed and sanctified. Receive our supplications and prayers which we offer before you for all members of your holy church, that in their vocation and ministry, they may truly and devoutly serve you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray for all nations and peoples of the earth, and for those in authority among them, 
for the President of the United States, for the Congress and the Supreme Court, for the members and representatives of the United Nations, for all who serve the common good, that by God's help, they may seek justice and truth and live in peace and concord. Almighty God, kindle, we pray, in every heart the true love of peace and guide with your wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth, that in tranquility your dominion may increase until the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for all who suffer and are afflicted in body or in mind. For the hungry and the homeless, the destitute and the oppressed. For the sick, the wounded and the crippled. For those in loneliness, fear and anguish. For those who face, who face temptation, doubt, and despair for the sorrowful and bereaved for prisoners and captives and those in mortal danger that God in his mercy will comfort and relieve them and grant them the knowledge of his love and stir up in us the will and patience to minister to their needs Gracious God, the comfort of all who sorrow, the strength of all who suffer, let the cry of those in misery and need come to you, that they may find your mercy present with them in all their afflictions. And give us, we pray, the strength to serve them for the sake of him who suffered for us, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray for all who have not received the gospel of Christ. For those who have never heard the word of salvation. For those who have lost their faith. For those hardened by sin or indifference. For those who in the name of Christ have persecuted others. That God will open their hearts to the truth and lead them to faith and obedience. Merciful God, creator of all the peoples of the earth and lover of souls, 
Have compassion on all who do not know you as you are revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ. Let your gospel be preached with grace and power to those who have not heard it. Turn the hearts of those who resist it and bring home to your fold those who have gone astray, that there may be one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us commit ourselves to God and pray for the grace of a holy life that with all who have departed this world and have died in the peace of Christ and those whose faith is known to God alone, we may be accounted worthy to enter into the fullness of the joy of our Lord and receive the crown of life in the day of resurrection. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which are, were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. For your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.